Hey everybody, welcome to The Question Show. Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. Maybe it's because I'm just coming back from the hiatus, but there hasn't been a lot of great questions that have been accumulating in between the shows. So now's your chance. I'm looking for good questions. If something pops into your brain, write it down, gather them up, and once we'll them here. And of course, if you want to join the live show, I do this every Monday at 5pm Pacific uh, on my YouTube channel. And so you can join live and we do a bunch of live questions as well. So alright, let's get into this week's questions. Don Carlo de Vargas. Question to build space stations, etc. In space, we must send it up with typical rockets. Is it possible to instead create matter up in space from the sun's rays from the sun, making atoms from photons somehow? That is some Star Trek technology that you are proposing. And um, two months ago, I would have said no, absolutely not. There is no way that we know to turn just light into matter. We know of ways that you can turn energy into matter. Like if you take particles, you put them in a particle accelerator, you accelerate them up to enormous velocities, you're essentially dumping energy, you're increasing the kinetic energy of those particles, and you can increase them by so much that when they collide, the energy that's released is in such a compact space that particles dump out. And you get essentially energy getting turned into matter but a very expensive way. I mean, you've got to spend an enormous amount of energy to accelerate these particles. But just in the last couple of months, research has announced that they have been able to essentially force light into a very small area and generate particles coming out of it, essentially turning light into particles, creating a replicator. Now, of course, this is like a tiny little proof of concept that it is maybe possible to turn light into particles. And it's going to take a long time before anyone turns this into anything actually functional, like decades, centuries. <laughs> but you're exactly right that lifting material off Earth to send it up into space to be able to use in space is very expensive. I mean, we're looking at at least $3,000 a kilogram to $10,000 a kilogram, maybe even more. If you want to send stuff to the moon, you're looking at millions of dollars a kilogram. It's very expensive. Now, you don't need to turn the sun's light into atoms, you just grab stuff that's already in space. There are asteroids, comets, there's moon rock, there's all kinds of stuff that's already out there in space. And in fact, there's a whole science called in situ resource utilization. And this is this idea of wherever you are, if you're on Mars, and you need to make fuel, turn carbon dioxide and water into methane, and now you can fuel your rocket. If you're on the moon, dig into a lunar crater, and gather some of that water and turn that into oxygen, water for drinking, rocket fuel, things like that, grind up the lunar regolith and turn it into concrete and other building materials. And this is going to be the thing that enables our expansion into the entire solar system is our ability to live off the land to be able to go to some place, the moon, Mars, asteroids, comets, the outer solar system, whatever, gather up the local material that we need in that place, and be able to create it and use it. So that is the whole future of space exploration from this point forward. And we're just at the nascent stages of this. So not photons into matter, but definitely using material out in space for stuff in space and not bringing it up from Earth. Steve Blanmay. 
When I see the artistic representations of what these Dyson spheres look like, all I can think is, where are you going to get all of this usable material? And by the way, what material would that be? How are we going to process it? How are we going to assemble it in the environment of the sun? Each of these questions has multiple tangents on their own. I think the romanticism of the Dyson sphere is getting out of hand. Also, how are we going to safely transfer the energy to Earth? Or are we? All right, Steve, slow down, slow down. I think you're you are definitely getting away from yourself here. It's it can be as simple. You know, I, I've used this example many times already. We are already beginning the construction of our Dyson sphere. When you think of, say, the Hubble Space Telescope, or maybe the SOHO telescope, something that is in orbit around the sun. It is a piece of metal. This was launched from Earth. It has solar panels. It is harvesting some of the solar energy coming from the sun, and it is turning it into some purpose. In this case, a telescope that is observing the sun. But then we've got lots of other stuff. You're going to have James Webb. You're going to have all the Starlink satellites. In the future, year after year, we're just going to have another spacecraft orbiting the sun and then another spacecraft orbiting the sun. And then maybe somebody's going to build some kilometer sized solar panel array to build some manufacturing facility to be able to generate that rocket fuel that I was talking about earlier. And just over time, we will build more and more satellites that will be orbiting the sun in various orbits. And so you can imagine some future time when we've used up all of the asteroids and turned them into sun satellites. And then we've, say, ground up the Mars and Mercury and turned them into satellites. And then we use up all of the moons of all of the gas planets. And then eventually we tear apart the gas planets themselves and build them into even more satellites that are orbiting the sun. And of course, each step requires more capability, more technology and so on. But it is just this smooth step by step operation. It's kind of like saying, like, build New York City. Are you crazy? Think about how big that is. How many people would you have to move? And yet, the city appears year by year, as human beings set about building it. And so it's the same thing with the Dyson sphere. Now, if you took all of the planets in the solar system, all of the asteroids, all of the comets, all of the Kuiper belt objects, and you just spread them out, you would be able to build a complete sphere around the sun at the distance of the Earth that was about four inches thick. So it's definitely, you know, obviously, we don't know anything that is strong enough to build a sphere. And of course, Dyson never said that people were going to actually build a rigid sphere. His understanding was that we would have satellites that were orbiting around the star, collecting the light in various ways on different orbits until you got to a point that every photon that was coming out of the sun was hitting some piece of hardware that we had created. And that would be the point where we were harvesting all of the power of the sun. And of course, it's a thought experiment. It's not like a real thing, a real engineering challenge. It's just again, this idea of saying, hmm, if our energy use continues, what would be the logical end of that energy use, and it would be us surrounding the star in solar collection that we would then use for our future energy needs. Obviously, we can run out of power. Obviously, we can have something that sets us back. Obviously, we can not use as much energy, more conservation, our population go down, we can get hit by an asteroid, there's a million things that will change that. But if you just look at the smooth curve of energy growth throughout the entire of human history, at some point, and not long in the future, our energy demands will match the output of the star. Canon Lucas. 
what do you think of AI systems like GPT-3? So as you probably know, my background is in computer science. And so I watch all of the developments in uh, computers and artificial intelligence quite closely. And I'm a gigantic fan of GPT-3. I've got an account with GPT-3. I applied because I wanted to try and see if I could, we could use GPT-3 as a way to summarize journal articles in a way that we could make them more accessible. It didn't work great. Um, uh, you know, maybe if I spent a lot of time working with it, then we could probably make something that's useful, but I wasn't able to sort of get very far with it. There's a new competitor called a 21 Jurassic that I've been playing around with. And then the one that I'm really excited about is this program called Dolly, which will draw pictures based on what you type in. And so the examples are a chair shaped like an avocado and other things like that. So right now they're like a dumb parrot and even GPT three, you can just tell that it's just, it's not very smart. It's kind of impressive in the way that a parrot can be impressive when it is singing a song or repeating what you're saying, but it doesn't really understand what it's doing. And it's the same thing with GPT three. It's fancy autocorrect. But what I really like is the way you interact with it. Like, like up until this point, if you want to do computer programming, you have to tell the computer explicitly exactly what you want it to do. And now it feels like we're going into this world where you can describe in rough terms, you can provide prompts, you can, you can script your prompts in different ways to get the program to produce kind of unexpected results. And the thing that I found it the most useful for is sort of as a partner to help me write to help get some some creative ideas. And so I will say, write the introduction for something that I'm working on, feed it into GPT three, see what it sends me back is how it would continue my article. And then that may give me some ideas on on other stuff to include and expand upon. There's no way you can trust it today to write anything that's of any value unless you're just trying to get away with web spam, but I can absolutely see a future. And I don't think it's going to be that long. You know, when right now GPT three has whatever 175 billion parameters, people are going to work on a trillion parameter, multi-trillion parameter. There will come this time in the next couple of years, I think where you will be able to get these tools to write stuff. That's fairly comprehensive, fairly cogent and very useful. And then you're also going to be able to have it draw pictures. You're going to have it be able to draw figures, be able to, to come up with graphs and, and data visualizations, kind of like Iron Man, right? Um, and then eventually start to create, you know, longer, more useful audio, video, text, things like that. So I think what you're seeing is the first step of really an entirely new art form. And of course, the way it always works in the beginning is it sucks, but give it time, especially as technology is increasing at this accelerating rate. And I'm sure within the next five years less, you're going to be depending on these kinds of things all day, every day. Sierra Vortec. I hear a lot about the ISS showing a lot of wear and tear. I would have thought something floating around in nothingness close to it would last forever. Yeah, the evidence seems to be building that the International Space Station is showing its age. It is old. At this point, it's 20 years plus, and some of the modules are older than other modules. 
and you know, I understand it feels like the thing is just sitting there out in the middle of space. It's not getting rained on. It's not getting snow on it. It's not in the dirt, but it is experiencing all kinds of environmental issues. Think about it. Every 90 minutes, it goes from sunlight to darkness. And so the temperature is changing by hundreds of degrees. And that's got to have an effect across the entire station with all the metals contracting and expanding with each cycle that's going on. The thing is a machine, right? All of these pumps and hydraulics and filters and all this stuff happening inside the station. And these things are breaking down all the time. And in fact, the astronauts have to spend more and more time on every one of their missions to keep the various parts of the International Space Station in proper operation. And then you've also got the constant bombardment by micrometeorites. So it is getting rained on, but it's getting rained on by chunks of rock and space debris going tens of thousands of kilometers per hour of wearing it down like sandpaper. And so you can see on some of the solar panels, you can see cracks and chips and like it's being just pummeled by this stuff. And so really there is a lifetime that the space station is going to last. And I think part of the whole point of launching the international space station is to understand what wears down, what requires more maintenance, what goes first so that we can build longer lasting existence in space. If we want to build the giant O'Neill cylinder that will have hundreds of thousands of people living in it for decades, it's got to be built to last. And so by running the International Space Station, seeing what breaks that tells you which parts need to be repaired. But it also just really shows you that living in space is not going to be just this really simple go to space, you're floating around, you're enjoying your time you are actually in this very hostile environment inside a completely closed ecosystem, a machine that is keeping you alive and any part of it could break down. And many of those breakdowns could be life threatening to the astronauts involved. So there will come a time when the maintenance that's required to keep the space station running is just not worth it. And they will deorbit it. And that will be the right move because it's just it's too unsafe, sort of the same kind of math they did with the space shuttle, although in the space shuttle, just the actual design of it had some safety issues as well. But but this is the future of the space station, and it won't be too long either. We're probably into its last decade at this point. Larry Beckham, you must have seen Foundation now. What do you think? I loved it so far. Um, I've seen two episodes of Foundation now. This is the series that's on Apple TV, and they're fantastic. The world building is great. The graphics are great. All of the characters, the technology is great. People always ask me what my favorite science fiction series is. And I would say it's foundation. And I went back and reread the foundations and they don't entirely hold up. Um, but the the idea of just this long length of time, this this idea of thinking about civilization, a future civilization over a vast period of time and thinking about the rise and fall of that civilization is it just really tickled a part of my brain. Um, and so reading the books, coming back to the books, you could see the limitations of Asimov's thinking and experience back in the 1950s when he was writing these. And so they've captured that quite well, like the technology feels like 1950s technology. And yet very, very futuristic. Like you don't have people beep booping on computers the way they do in say Star Trek or things like that, where they're just trying to take our current technology and extend it like they've really kind of reimagined 
how various technologies work. And I really like it. They've definitely added a lot of characterization to the story. We'll see how well that plays out because in foundation, there were no characters. There were just set pieces to get across points. The character was foundation. The character was the timeline of the empire. And, and so I don't know whether I would have preferred if they really rigorously stuck to the books and didn't try to add a pile of character to it and just followed the timeline of the books, one episode per book in per chapter in foundation, like when he did them as short stories. And so it'd be interesting. Anyway, uh, I'm rambling. Um, I'm really enjoying it. If you are into sci-fi at all, you should definitely watch it. I hope it all pays off in the end. I'm waiting to be disappointed at some point. More questions in a second, but first I'd like to thank our patrons, Helga Bjorkog, The Giant Nothing, Jordan Young, Viva Tomlin, Bob Harkins, and the rest of our 805 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Durish Slavic. Hey Fraser, are you a big ripper or a big cruncher? I am neither. Um, all right, so you're talking about the way the universe ends and the multiple ways that things could wrap things up. In the olden days, say back in the 1980s, astronomers weren't sure how the universe was going to end. And so they performed a bunch of really detailed experiments to measure the topology of the universe. They're trying to figure out whether or not the universe was going to continue expanding forever or whether the universe was going to continue expanding, but it would essentially come to a stop at an infinite amount of time, or it would expand for a while, and then it would reach its limit. And then the mutual gravity of everything in the universe would pull it back together, and it would turn into a big crunch. And what they found was that the universe would expand, everything would stop after infinite time. And so it would just continue expanding forever but it was just going to get slower and slower as it as it expanded. But then in the late 1990s, astronomers discovered this concept of dark energy. And dark energy says that in fact, not only is the expansion of the universe happening, it's actually accelerating. And so not coasting to a stop, it's going to keep going faster and faster, expanding things to get farther and farther apart faster and faster. And from that, then what you get is you get this future universe that everything is getting farther apart from each other. All the stars in the galaxy get used up. Everything falls into black holes or doesn't fall into black holes. Everything is dead. Maybe the protons themselves decay, the black holes decay. You're just left with this cooling down universe where everything just ends up the same temperature, the background temperature of the universe. And they call that the heat death of the universe. It sounds like everything is getting cooked, but the reality is, is that everything is just cooling down to nearly to absolute zero the death of heat. And the one alternative version of that heat death of that, you know, all the time, right, you've got the, the dark energies pushing and expanding the the universe. And so the one possibility is that the rate the dark energy is changing the expansion of the universe could increase over time. And so we could see a point where right now, galaxy clusters are being carried away from each other, but maybe in the future, galaxies will be carried away from each other. And then maybe the galaxy itself, the stars will be carried away from each other and then the planets and then atoms and eventually black holes. And so just things will be ripped apart at an atomic level. And this is this idea of the big rip. 
So right now it's too early to know if the big rip is going to happen. There are some new surveys. There's a dark energy survey. Uh, Nancy Grace Roman is going to be doing some of this work trying to measure dark energy and astronomers want to find out has the amount of dark energy that's been going on in the universe been constant over the history of the universe. And if it has, then the heat death is the eventual outcome. But if the rate of dark energy is increasing, then you get the big rip. So I think the big crunch, the one where everything comes back together, that's off the table at this point. You've not only got the fact that the universe is still going to coast forever, but dark energy is accelerating its expansion. And so it really comes down to heat death or big rip. And the big rip, I mean, obviously, all these things are going to happen billions of years into the future, I won't be around for it. Well, maybe I will robot bodies and all but still, we don't have any way to tell the difference. But the big rip sounds kind of scary and sad. So my hope is on the heat death. Go heat death. Glenn Stucklaus. Hey Fraser, I'm excited about the new James Webb telescope. When is it finally going to be online and sending back data? Also, what will it be able to do that Hubble and co can't? Right now, James Webb is going to be launching in late December uh, 2021. So this year still, once it does launch, though, you're looking at about a month of the telescope unfolding itself, getting into its final location, going through all of its initial testing. So we won't see that first light image from James Webb until January, February of 2022. Now, what can James Webb do? I mean, James Webb is ridiculously more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope for a very specific purpose. It's an infrared telescope. Well, Hubble can do near infrared, it can do visible light, and it can do ultraviolet, James Webb is purely in the infrared spectrum, it can look much more into the infrared than Hubble can, but also look in some of the same parts that Hubble can. And it's like six Hubble Space Telescopes, seven, all aligned in a hexagonal shape. So it's really powerful. And so like the main thing that James Webb is going to be able to do is to be able to look all the way out to the very edge of the observable universe, pretty much to see when the first galaxies were coming together, when you've got all of these small little sub galaxies that are forming like building blocks into bigger and bigger objects. And right now, Hubble every now and then gets a glance at one of these galaxies, because it uses a gravitational lens, it essentially uses the gravity of a foreground object to act as a natural lens to see a background object, and it can see a galaxy that is like, 500 million years after the Big Bang. James Webb will be able to do this just record wherever James Webb wants to look, it can see these first building block galaxies. And then of course, it's gonna be able to do a bunch of other stuff, it's gonna be able to look at cooler objects here in the solar system, maybe it'll be able to find planet nine, it's going to be able to look at and measure the atmospheres of exoplanets, it could theoretically discover life could find an atmosphere that has the kind of chemicals going on in the atmosphere that are indicative of life. So James Webb is a really big deal. And astronomers have been pinning their hopes and dreams on this telescope for the better part of 20 years. This is the telescope they wanted next. And it's 10 years late, but it's still a telescope that they want. TP Seeker. Perseid meter showers seem to have been duds for the last few years. Does Earth's orbit have anything to do with why we don't see as many meteors during the Perseids? Meteors can be good or bad for a bunch of reasons. So one of the big reasons why a meteor shower can be bad is it all depends on the moon. Like if you've got a full moon during a meteor shower, it's a bad meteor shower. 
And if you've got a new moon, that's a better meteor shower. And also like the Perseids are not the best of the meteor shower. I would say the Geminids right now are the best meteor shower, the ones with the most meteors. And recently you can get meteor storms with the Leonids. But the advantage of the Perseids is they occur during August, which for the Northern Hemisphere is a nice warm time of the year that you can lay outside and watch for meteors for hours and hours and not feel super uncomfortable. And that's why they're the most famous. Now, the meteor showers can be better or worse depending on the Earth's orbit. Absolutely, because what causes a meteor shower is the tail of a comet, or in one case, an asteroid. And so every time this comet is coming past the sun and going back out, it's laying a trail of debris in space behind it. And so each one of these is like a little trail that's carved out in the solar system. And then the Earth's orbit carries it in an intersection through these trails. And so depending on how recently the trail was laid down by the comet, that's how good of a meteor shower or even a meteor storm that you get. The best case scenario is the comet was fairly recent. We pass right through the tail of where the comet was, and then we get a ton of debris coming into the Earth's atmosphere. And then in other cases, we may go a little above it, a little below it, or maybe it's been a long time since the comet was here last. And so there's just not a lot of debris that's left over to enter the atmosphere of the Earth. And so this is why astronomers can actually make predictions about how good they think meteor showers are going to be. They know where the comets were. They know where the Earth's orbit is in relation to these comets, and they know when where we're going to be going through these comet tails and whether we're going to have a good one or a bad one. So definitely pay attention when the astronomers tell you, okay, this is going to be a really good Leonids or a really good Geminids because the positions are really well lined up. And sometimes they just mess it up. Like some, sometimes they think it's going to be good and then it just doesn't end up being good. And sometimes it's a surprise. So meteor showers can wax and wane um, depending on all of those conditions. Perrine. Hi Fraser, isn't it risky to look at the sun even with a solar telescope? Shouldn't we project the image elsewhere first? For starters, yes. Never, ever, ever, ever look at the sun with a telescope, like with your own eyes. You will destroy them instantly. You can light paper on fire when you project an image of the sun through a telescope. Very bad idea. Never do it. No, no, no. But there are telescopes that are operated by NASA and there's the Daniel K. Inouye solar telescope on Haleakala that is focusing on the sun. And of course, it seems really dangerous when you've got a four meter telescope looking at the sun. Of course, managing all of this is incredibly complicated. So what they do is they block a tremendous amount of the light that's coming from the sun. 99.99% of that light. And then the light that they're left with, they split it a bunch of times, and then they magnify that. And that's how they're able to take a look at the images on the sun. But your first step is you've got to block that light at the source. And so if you've got a telescope, and you want to look at the sun, what you do is you put a solar filter, and you put it on the front of your telescope. So before the light from the sun gets into your telescope, you have already knocked it down a significant amount. So you're left with a very, very dim object. And then that can be magnified inside your telescope to be able to see the features on the sun. 
and it wouldn't be possible if you didn't do that. And so with say the more powerful telescopes out there, a lot of their issue is the heat management. The thing is facing at the sun, it's gathering an enormous amount of heat, and they have to be able to mitigate all of that heat within the observatory and get it pumped out. So that's a lot of the big challenge is that your telescope doesn't overheat because you're looking at the sun. But they've been able to figure out how to do this scientifically, uh, engineering feet. And, uh, and so we can get these incredible images of the sun without destroying the telescope itself. Matter hat, why is it harder to go down the gravity well to the sun? So right now, the Earth is in orbit around the sun, and we're going 30 kilometers per second. And so if you just aim your spacecraft at the sun and you fire your rocket, you're just going to end up in a different orbit around the sun. The only way to actually fall into the sun is to cancel out that 30 kilometers per second of velocity that the earth has in going around. And so if the first thing you have to do is you have to launch a rocket from the surface of the earth. So you've got to go like 11 kilometers per second to go into earth orbit. So you've used up a ton of your propellant to be able to just get into earth orbit. And then you've got to fire your rocket and get another 30 kilometers per second of velocity change to be able to cancel that. And if you could, then you would just fall directly down into the sun. But if you don't, then you're going to be in orbit around the sun, just in a different orbit than the Earth's orbit. And so that's why it's actually really hard. And so in order to get down to Mercury, spacecraft have to do slingshots. They use these gravitational slingshots around Venus, around Earth, even around Mercury, each time essentially speeding up the planet. It's like the opposite of the gravitational slingshots that they do when they're trying to go out into the outer solar system, where they slow down Jupiter a tiny amount and get a big speed boost. When you fall in, it's backwards. You are speeding up Earth a tiny little bit or speeding up Venus a tiny little bit. And you are slowing down your velocity and putting yourself into a better orbit to get closer and closer. And after multiple of these flybys, you can make it down to say the orbit of Mercury. I think the Parker Solar Probe has to do 11, some enormous number of flybys of the various planets to be able to get really close to the sun. So that's why. Michael Booth, getting stuff and people home from Mars. How do we do that? Is it just as easy as getting there? No. Uh, getting stuff back from Mars is going to require us mastering this in situ resource utilization that I mentioned, we're going to have to be able to make the rocket fuel on Mars. So the spacecraft say Starship is going to launch from Earth, it's going to refuel in Earth orbit a few times, and then it's going to fly to Mars, land on Mars, send all the Mars astronauts out onto the surface. And then it's going to be hooked up to some kind of reactor on Mars that is going to be turning carbon dioxide and water into methane fuel locally. And all it requires is those raw resources. It's a very well known chemical process and has been demonstrated many times here on Earth. There's no reason to think why it wouldn't work on Mars as well. And then over long periods of time, it will fill up its tanks on the surface of Mars, and then it'll be able to lift off and fly back to Earth. Of course, the gravity well on Mars is a lot lower, so it doesn't require as much fuel as it does to get out of the gravity well of Earth. And so once we've mastered that technology of being able to generate rocket fuel on Mars, then we'll be able to bring people home. And in fact, Perseverance and the future European Space Agency rover are going to be collecting samples. They're going to be returned to Earth with a Mars sample return mission. And that's probably where we're going to see this technology tested out first. The rocket's going to land on Mars empty, and then it's going to generate its fuel on the surface of Mars 
the samples will arrive and it's going to lift off from Mars and come back to Earth. There's more steps, but generally that's what's going to happen. And so we'll find out whether or not this system works at all. And then later on, if you want to be one of the colonists who goes to Mars, you'll be able to go to Mars. And then when a rocket is coming back home, it'll be refueled. You'll be able to get on and return to Earth. All right. Those were the questions this week. Thank you, everybody who asked them either beforehand or during the live show itself. Again, I need more questions. So if any of the ideas that we talk about here or with any of the interviews or episodes that we do, or if just anything in the news uh, gives you a question, go ahead, just type it in on any one of my shows, and I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. All right, I'll see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights, and links so you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all of my videos are also available in handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks, as always, to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.